The following podcast contains content of a highly graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. The material covered is based on first-hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, every effort has been made to show respect to the victims and their families. Support for this episode comes from the country's leading mapping technology and services provider, Esri Australia. To learn more about how Esri Tech is making a difference in crime analysis and public safety, head to Esri Australia, that's E-S-R-I australia.com.au slash crime. in a cult of sexually abusing children, do you have a moment to talk to me? What we discovered was that literally thousands of counts of sexual assault had been occurring. I'm Tori Shepard, and this is Mapping Evil with Mike King. He looked for divorced women who had families, were struggling financially, and he offered them security. And all they had to do is be sexually active with him and do what he told them. The podcast where we look at how geography and mapping predators and victims can help solve and predict crimes. That's the beauty of GIS is it starts to paint these pictures, it starts to create link analysis charts that show us that one individual is reaching out to 10 and those 10 are reaching out to four others. And most importantly, it also helps us ask more questions. And even help people avoid becoming victims. One of our victims said to me, I didn't go to this place to join a cult and become a criminal. I came here to flee an abusive marriage. Episode 2, The Cartography of Cults. Today, we're going to talk about cults, the profiles of those who lead them, the victimology of people who follow them, and how geography can help us understand how these groups are established and why they can operate for years on end. I'm here with Mike King. Mike was trained by FBI profilers and has become one of the world's best cold case investigators. Mike, we know in your career you've handled some pretty horrific cases, but this one was different because there was a polygamous doomsday cult that was abusing children in your hometown. Mike, can you tell us how you got involved in the takedown of the Zion Society? I actually walked into the office after lunch on a particular day, and there was a woman sitting in a chair in the in the waiting area, and the receptionist grabbed me and said, hey, could you please talk to this woman? She's been waiting for some time, and I just don't have anyone available. So I was kind of the last person they would want talking to her, and I uh, walked over and introduced myself, and the first words out of her mouth were, I've been involved in a cult that's sexually abusing children. Do you have a moment to talk to me? And uh, as you might guess, I mean, I, I tried to act like that was something I hear every day, Tori, but it absolutely <laughs> was not. And it launched me into one of the most incredible emotional roller coaster investigations I've ever investigated. Well, what a sliding doors moment and how fortunate for everyone that you were the guy just walking in after lunch because you busted this cult. But let's give our listeners a taste of what was going on in this cult. Like, Who were they? What did they believe? You know, it was an interesting one, a little bit different than many, and most will have a command structure or a controlling structure. If you think about organized religion, organized religion is kind of built to look outward at how do we help the community and the parishioners and others. Cults are very much the opposite. It's all about how do we build up the leader? How do we make their life better? How do we uh, adore them? And this cult was no different. The thing that was odd about this cult 
is that what we've seen is many of these closed societies will organize off the beaten path, somewhere out in the woods or a place where they can be free from people being able to see what's going on. That's what people always picture, right? They picture the compound. That's right. And this was so different, Tori, because what they did is they put it right under our noses in a community. And yet they found a closed off community. There was only one way into the community and one way out. And it was surrounded by open fields and areas where you couldn't surveil the place. But they built this thing right under our noses and it started to grow and it grew rapidly over about a four to five year period. And there's this amazing map that you showed me, which you can see again on the Mapping Evil website, where it shows how it's almost like they're colonising a suburb. Which city are we in? Where are they creating their network? This is in the United States in the Rocky Mountains in the state of Utah. It's the northern part of Utah in a city called Ogden. And the thing that was so intriguing about this is this was a community that was founded uh, by the early Latter-day Saint, the Mormon pioneers, if that history ever came across. They were some of the first people. They actually settled the Salt Lake Valley and created Salt Lake City and led to the creation of the state of Utah. It was a highly religious group of people. But soon the city took in the first transcontinental railroad and actually is the location where both the East and the West railroads came together. They call it the Golden Spike. And uh, the city was uh, the center point of that Golden Spike, which then started bringing in brothels and all kinds of things. So you had these two polar opposite communities that were all functioning in the same area. You had a highly religious place that was flinging open church doors on Sundays And you had these seedy bars and opium pits and everything else that were going on down in the lower parts of the city. But there were these links between the two, right? Between the the seedy and the the righteous cult, because this is part of how you got to start mapping them, right? That they started doing business with the brothels. That's right. Well, they actually started leaning on the fact that this group used landscaping as a way to build a business and to make money for the group. And so they started having business inside of the city and around the city. And as they started to crop up, what we did is we used GIS or mapping. Back then, it was much more rudimentary than it is today. But we used that to start identifying which houses were being used and which houses were being purchased so that as they grew kind of like this cancerous group that they were, we were able to map as each home came up for sale, they would quickly gobble that up and buy it for whatever price someone wanted to sell it for just so they could claim it as part of the compound that they were building. So it became really important to understand where people were coming from who were joining the group, where the people were that were inside the group, who neighbors were that were not affiliates of the group. And all of that became important in trying to understand how to best infiltrate and take down the group. And again, the map is really great at showing how this all works together. But it's like you have the web of the cults And then you have the spider at the middle who is the cult leader. Can you tell us a bit about Shreve? Yeah, at the time we served the arrest on him, he was a 61-year-old landscaper. He was kind of a dumpy-looking guy, and yet he expected all of the women and, and people within his group to be always at their very best, dressed to the T in makeup, always looking good. They actually forced them to weigh in every single day to hit a weight limit. What is in step on the scales to make sure that they're not getting... Exactly. 
Uh. And so every single day they would be weighed and someone would either say, you're not going to be eating any longer, but they had to be an optimal weight. And all of this was to fit this fantasy that he had created in his mind of what this utopian society should look like. And these seemingly intelligent people bought off on this kind of philosophy. God. And one of the things that often happens, I guess, with cults is that they have something to hold over, like the world is going to end and you will only be saved if you do what I say. Was there a doomsday aspect? Yes, they were very much doomsdayers, end of world. We call them constitutionalists at times because they fight against the Constitution or they fight in favor of the Constitution. And this group was very much the same. They were stockpiling weapons. They were stockpiling medicine, prescription drugs, and they were stockpiling food. And all of that were ghost stories that we were hearing about or rumors that were coming into the police department, but we could never substantiate them because we didn't have any reason to go in and really get inside the homes and validate that. All of the activity they would conduct would be after hours. So at night, this place would come alive with people pulling up in vehicles and unloading supplies. And I remember one particular resident talking about what he could sit out on his porch on a hot summer's evening and hear the women walking from house to house and listening to their high heels clicking on the sidewalk as they carried all of these provisions from house to house. It was just absolutely insane what they were doing. Oh, that's so eerie. One of the other things I want to quickly touch on, because we're going to dive even deeper into how cults operate a little bit later, but with the Zion Society, you got in there, you busted up, but one of the other interesting things you did is you tracked where the leaders went after that. You know, you can de-radicalise people from cults and you can rescue the survivors and give them help, but quite often the leaders, the people who saw how the power structure worked, they set up elsewhere, is that right? And you could see where they've gone to start again. That's exactly what happened. In fact, in this case, what we did by the time we served the search warrants and our goal was to take 32 children into protective custody, what we discovered was that literally thousands of counts of sexual assault and rape of children had been occurring once the arrests were made and we went through the criminal justice system where 12 people went to prison, including the self-proclaimed prophet, as they started to get out of prison, they started to go off into other areas. And, and I tried to watch them throughout my career and follow them. And it was, it was quite disappointing to see how some of them would go and join other fundamentalist groups, doomsday kinds of groups. It was almost just a sad, stark reminder that we didn't really change a lot. We protected some children for that period of time, but there are some personality types that just want to be controlled. And so they went and looked for another place where they could be controlled. That is so sad. Just quickly, I could see how emotional you were. So you've gone on the Dr. Phil show and some of the survivors of this cult were on stage talking about their experiences and they seemed like really strong women. How is that for you to actually just see them? You know, they've come out the other side. They can now talk about it. I mean, I saw a tear in your eye. Oh, yeah. I got really emotional. And uh, just to see them was incredible. And of course, we're in the middle of COVID. And so not being able to go over and greet them and uh, that was really difficult. But it was so amazing to see as I looked into their faces, and again, these are 45-year-old women now, I could still see those 12, 13, 14-year-old children's faces. 
And I had one special one, Andrea, who I, the moment I saw her, I reflected back on watching her be loaded into a Division of Family Services van on the morning of that raid where we used 70 police officers to hit all of these homes at once in order to take down this cult. And I remember just being locked eye to eye with this child as she was driving away in this family services, social services van to be interrogated and interviewed for weeks. It came back with such a rush of emotion. It was really uh, quite an experience for me. It was an extraordinary episode. So, Mike, we're going to get back to the Zion Society and hear a lot more about them. But for now, I think this is going to be really interesting for our Australian listeners because we're going to talk about probably the most well-known cult in Australia and they were called The Family. I think a lot of people will have seen the photos at the time from The Family because what Anne Hamilton Byrne did was try to make all these kids that she kind of well, stole, you know, through scam adoptions from unwed mothers, that sort of thing. And she tried to make them all look the same. So I think a lot of people will remember these pictures of all these kids with a bobbed, bleached haircut. It's spooky. She's trying to make them all look the same. You know, they look like brothers and sisters because she was pretending that they were all her kids. Now, you've been reading up a little bit on the family. Do you want to give us a bit of the backstory? I was so fascinated, and again with my earlier statement, that as different as these groups like to think they are, holy cow, they are so, so similar in nature. And I actually even reached out to the lead investigator in the case of the family who lives uh, just outside of Melbourne. In fact, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the similarities between the two cases. Here, Anne had started creating this utopian society that in her mind made sense. The thing that was so strange about her is she seemed to have this desire. She came from, if I remember right, a father and a family where I think he worked in the railroad industry or something. He was just a regular Joe, but she didn't want to have that kind of appearance in in public. And so she led people on to believe that she was almost like monarchy. A real social climber, I think we'd call her. Yes. And there were pictures of her with prime ministers and other kinds of uh, important people that she would find her way into. But she created this environment where people believed that she was a savior of sorts and that they, by following her, would be guaranteed to be this most powerful, intelligent, worthy race that would be ushered into the eternities. And she was pretty clever, right? So she'd do things like, in one instance, she slept with somebody's gardener to get some gossip out of them so she could then go to the owner of the property and seem like she had these psychic abilities, right? And then blending all this strange kind of Eastern mysticism and things that I guess that a lot of more mainstream people might believe in, but tying it into her own strange fantasies where she was the uh, charismatic head. Oh, and when she really got rolling, the theatrics really turned out where in talking to this lead investigator, uh, he shared with me how she would get physicians to induce people with LSD. And when they were in this heightened state of being under the influence of narcotics, she would uh, suddenly appear in a doorway in a big white flowing gown with lights on behind her and she would have steam coming up behind her from dry ice. Oh yeah, dry ice, like the disco stuff. And uh, people would, to the day they died, swear that they had seen 
this risen being, this heavenly deity, and she got away with it. She got away with for a long time, and there were a lot of, I think there was ultimately 28 kids that went through that property out on Lake Eildon, but a lot of adults as well, and even the people who didn't end up in her compound, which we're going to talk about in a second, would still kind of pay obeisance to her and worship her, and, you know, everybody wrote about how sexually attractive she was, so she had some kind of magnetic hold on all these people. But let's talk about... Unlike with the Zion Society, well, they had to build up their own isolated community within another community. But what Hamilton Byrne did is maybe a bit more normal for cults, which was, let us find a place that is just a little bit out of the way where we can live this strange communal life. What do we know about where these kids ended up? Well, we know that in Lake Yildon, uh, she put together this little compound where she had really nice control. What it appears happened was in the place where she failed was the children uh, still had opportunity to have some interaction in the community. And several of the children were in the community one day when one member of the cult, one of the children, started a fire at a school. And that's what led investigators to start really understanding and looking into who these people were. And that led this investigator, uh, Lex DeMann, into forming this task force, Operation Forest, I believe he called it, and creating initially something that only was authorized to operate for 12 weeks. It ultimately took four years of his life until he finally got that conviction. But there weren't many convictions, were there? Did Lex demand talk about that at all? I mean, in, in some ways, obviously, you can prosecute clear cases of child abuse, but there's a lot about a cult that it would be hard to pin down for an investigator in terms of getting a conviction. I think Australia was facing the same challenge that we were facing in the United States and, frankly, many places in the world. Back in the 70s, 80s and 90s, we were still figuring out, and maybe today we're still figuring out, how to best interview children and how to best interview people who are victimized in cults, how to decompress what they've had years of training to believe in so that we can build solid criminal cases. So they become incredibly complex. But the thing about these cults is as soon as we start talking about them, I think about today's cults. You know, just recently we saw an arrest in the Nexium cult, which involved you know, a lot of kind of Hollywood stars. A lot of people are calling QAnon, you know, this kind of strange conspiracy theory that in Australia they believe that thousands of children are being trafficked as sex slaves under the cities. Anyway, people look up QAnon, you'll go down a rabbit hole and you'll be very, very frightened and remember that none of it is true. Let's talk a bit more broadly. Let's just widen this right out. You think that this can't happen that often, right? How many people can be believing this stuff? What's the cult lie of the land? Yeah, as I've talked to experts in Australia, even some suggest that it could be hundreds of cults in Australia. And of course, it becomes definitional uh, what fits a cult. Some of those may only have a few members. Some may have a huge number of people, like a family with an estimated 500 people at the time those things came to a close. It's mind-boggling. And for another show, I would love to talk about how you would teach your children not to believe in these kind of wild things. But, you know, we are in a strange time where people believe all sorts of interesting things. So we are talking about cults, but it's not really that clear what they are. It feels like sometimes people just say, you know, they might call something a cult just because it's a thing they don't believe in. 
But there are very specific ways that we can recognise what a cult is, right? Well, sometimes it is difficult. I mean, some people would say that multi-level marketing plans are cults in the way they do things. Believing in a certain sports team, some people could say that is cultish behavior. So what I like to do is go back to what some of the experts say, and that is that if we look at it from a religious perspective, organized religion is focused outward on how do we improve the life of the parishioner and how do we get closer to this elevated being or whatever it is that we believe in based on our faith tradition. The difference between those people and a cult is the cult is centered on the leader and they are the most important and they are the one that all of our funds and all of our efforts and all of our attention goes to. It's a very all about me kind of attitude when you start talking about cults. And I think that's just a really nice way of kind of looking at the difference between a legitimate organized group and someone that's a cult. And then we're back to the spider at the centre of the web, aren't we, a little bit? I mean, people often talk about the charisma of cult leaders. We talked about how Hamilton Byrne was sexually attractive, but that's not necessary. It just has to be someone with that magnetic power to bring people in. And so, again, I was thinking about Q, who I guess is the spider at the centre of the QAnon web. And there are some similarities. I mean, we don't know who this person is, but they pretend to, it's like Hamilton Byrne, like pretends to have all these powers and pretends to have all these insights and ability to make prophecies. So can you tell us a bit more about Shreve? Like, why were people drawn to him? Well, first, he claimed that he had a special position near God. He was a number two or a number three person in God's hierarchy, and that before he came to earth, he had the special responsibility to assemble only the smartest of people into this group. And and so as he reached out, uh, what he did is he appealed to their senses, their need. We think about sometimes just even Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It is that you can't reach self-actualization until you've satisfied those things that are below that. These leaders, these cult leaders are so good at taking care of things like belonging and self-worth and love or taking care of physiological kinds of needs. So it's so important that we look at what are they using to appeal to people and give them something that they weren't getting somewhere else. And it's that sense of belonging or that sense of need or taking care. In the case of the Shreve case, he looked for divorced women who had families, were struggling financially, and he offered them security and a place to live and a beautiful environment. And all they had to do is be sexually active with him and with children and do what he told. And before long, he convinced a huge number, over 100 people, to participate in that kind of activity. We think of cults as being like isolated, but they're not. They're always interacting, aren't they? They have to get supplies. They have to have some interaction with authorities. So today, with, I guess, the GIS that you didn't have when you busted the Zion Society, how would you do it today? How would you start to work out where the centre of this cult is? Yeah, the beauty today is we can start looking at things like socialized intelligence. We can look at the way in which they're using the internet, the way they're sharing information, how they're proselytizing their belief system out and looking for and growing their group. Then we have to look at the people who are joining. And so we can use GIS in a number of ways. We can start to look at geographically and globally where 
that proselytizing effort is reaching out to and how it's being responded to. But then we start looking at the kinds of people that are joining. Where are they coming from? What is their background? Is there ethnicity issues? Are there economic issues? And as we start to look at that, we can start thinking about areas in which they might recruit people. For instance, Shreve was smart enough to know that he was going to go to places where women would be working hourly wage jobs and have to be mature adults. Sometimes it was working in a bar. Other times it was a daycare operator. But they knew and they profiled the kind of victim that they were looking for. Using geography, we can do the same thing. We can look at economic boundaries and geographically examine things like cultural areas in a community and use those to help build up this uh, group of people who we want to follow us. Basically, use that old term that my grandpa used to tell me, go fishing where the fish are. That is a great phrase. So what you're doing is you're getting all this data together and then seeing where the patterns lie. So with the internet and even, you know, I guess the dark web and Facebook groups and all these sorts of things, is it possible to start to map out how these cults work online? Well, I think you can start to follow the money. You may not be able to do that geographically initially, but as you start to link together all of those relationships, you know, years ago, we used to just say, show me a dot on the map because everything's a dot on the map. The secret of GIS is to say, why is this particular dot? And this particular dot may be a single women with children who are in a financial situation that fits this recruitable group of people that we're looking for. Now, let's look at areas in which I'm going to find those people. So we start saying, why is this dot important to these other dots? And that's the beauty of GIS is it starts to paint these pictures. It starts to create link analysis charts that show us that one individual is reaching out to 10 and those 10 are reaching out to four others. Uh, It really helps paint a picture. and, And most importantly, it also helps us ask more questions. That brought to mind some of those really great data visualizations that I've seen you involved in as well. You can do such amazing mapping now where you just see that kind of emerge from the the massive data. Let's talk about Nexium. And I always feel like I'm not sure if I'm saying that right because it's spelled N-X-I-V-M, but Nexium, right? That is correct, yes. So this has been in the headlines so recently. Did it follow what we've talked about with these classic cult structures? Was Nexium similar? Absolutely. In fact, the leader of Nexium, Rainier, actually started in multi-marketing plans and he actually tried to do some legitimate businesses where he ran multi-level programs. And what he learned in that process, he started to apply with this self-improvement, self-help kind of seminar stuff. He really appealed to people by telling them how great they can be and how great they already are. And people started to come in. Once he started getting the momentum, that's when he started to really pervert his belief system and start to think that he was in a position to do more than he was doing. Ultimately, what we see in the court case in which he was convicted and sentenced to 120 years was that he perverted that to the point that he was creating relationships where he was having sexual relations with members, which, you know, consenting adults can do what consenting adults want to do. But he then started branding them. And so there were human uh, rights violations. There were money laundering violations. There were 
a number of things that led to his overall conviction. And the branding was an actual branding, wasn't it? Like he duked a cattle. Yeah, and it wasn't uh, like you would see on cattle. It was more of a tool that burned as they drew. And so they would actually put his initials and the initials of one of his chief assistants in the groin area of these female victims to brand them as property of his. Yikes. Now, when I saw those Nexium victims... You feel immense sympathy and empathy for them, but at the same time, there's this part of my brain that goes, that would never happen to me. (laughs) I'm deluded, aren't I? It's not people with psychological issues that get sucked into this, but it can be people with certain vulnerabilities. Nixium's a great example. I mean, these were Hollywood stars that were involved in this group that were high-profile, very successful people. I spoke with Frank Perlato, Uh, He's the investigative journalist and former member of the group who actually is credited with bringing the group down. And as Frank and I talked about the similarities between Nexium and, for instance, the Zion Society and the family, what we really realized was that the victimology in those groups was very similar, not the age of people or other things, but the mentality of people. And, you know, more importantly, as you and I have looked at For instance, the family in your country, those same characteristics existed in that case. I keep going back to this. As different as they would like to believe they are, they are so much the same. Yeah. So vulnerable people who are offered, well, like a snake oil solution to their problems. How do you start to protect people from cults? Can you protect, for example, the vulnerable women, you know, whether it's divorced, single women struggling in a precarious job or... How would you help your children? How do you teach people not to be susceptible to cults? You know, I think first and foremost is transparency is the most important thing. If there's a secrecy component, that should be the first red flag. And when I look at cults and the many cults that I've looked at, one of the first things I try to do is understand the pyramid of power, I call it. Who is that person that ultimately is the one that everyone looks to? And is that someone who's demanding that all of the focus is on them and their greatness and building up how amazing they are? Or are they really the kind of person who's saying, let's build out and let's look out and there's someone greater than me? So first and foremost, that power pyramid. Then I think it's important to start thinking about the method of recruitment that they use. How are they going out and finding members? And they're always going to start out very softly in their approach. People would never fall for this stuff if they knew what the end game was really going to be. A great example from the Zion Society was a young couple. He later became a police officer, the husband in the couple, and I was his training officer, said that he moved into the... You were, sorry, you were the training officer of the guy who ended up in the... For a, a young police officer who ended up in the Zion Society neighborhood. And he said immediately... They were surrounded by loving, warm people who were uh, bringing food over to him and welcoming him to the neighborhood. They came over and offered to finish his yard. And he said, man, I'm not going to turn down all of this help. And before he knew it, they were finishing his basement. And then they slowly started to say, hey, we could put food storage in your house if you don't mind sharing it with all of us. We just have more than we can store. So if you would let us put it in your home, we'll let you have it too if we ever get to a point we need to have food storage. 
And then the next step was, hey, if we ever had a woman who was uh, having a troubled marriage and needed a place to stay for a day or two, if we finished a bedroom in this house for you, could we use that from time to time? Well, he kept looking at all of this as free stuff. And he slowly was acclimated. And before long, they were teaching him their sexual way of life doctrine. And he and his wife were scratching their heads and they were both looking at each other. He was thinking, my wife is buying off on this. She was thinking, my husband's buying off. Neither of them had the courage to challenge the other one in their thinking. And finally, thankfully, they said, wait a minute, there's something weird here. And they moved away and got free of the group. But these were smart people who were slowly acclimated to the system. And so it's so important that we understand what those mechanisms are, how they gain control of the members. And once they gain control of them, what do they do to manage and maintain the security of them and the oversight of them? Those are the things that we should be teaching more often, I think. And look, I said that I thought I would never be susceptible to a cult, but now I'm thinking about good food and how susceptible I am to good food. And how maybe that would be their in with me for sure. You know, one of our victims said to me, I didn't go to this place to join a cult and become a criminal. I came here to flee an abusive marriage. And we have to also realize that these cult leaders are so good at figuring out on that Maslow hierarchy of needs where someone is. Because where you and I might be thinking at a self-actualization level, somebody who doesn't have food in their belly or a safe place for their children has a much different level of vulnerability than maybe we have today. And Mike, have you got any advice for what parents should say to children to try and build up their mental resilience to people who would suck them in in this way? Yes. Question everything. You know, we teach our children, do this because I said so. We need to teach our children to question everything. Now, there's a time to be obedient and a time to do what you're told to do, but we have to teach our children to be independent thinkers. I think that's true for everyone. I always like the phrase, always keep an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Mike, we're just about out of time, but I want to kind of wrap up with something from your book. Why don't you give us like just a little snapshot of how your book begins? The book begins with a statement that says, some stories should never be told. Others, regardless of how painful they are, must be told. And this particular book doesn't go into the seedy side of the assaults that occurred, but it does celebrate the victims who rose above it. I hope that as people jump into it, that they will see that even those who are victimized in the most horrendous levels can beat their offenders by raising above it. And uh, that would be my ultimate goal in the book. Oh, Mike, I think that is a beautiful note to end on. And I know we always go into these dark places, but you always seem to bring your own ray of light. (laughs) So, Mike, look, thank you so much. This has been another episode of Mapping Evil with Mike King. All those extras are there for you at mappingevil.com.au. Big thanks to today's sponsor, Esri Australia, who do mapping solutions to help public agencies across the country, your country and my country. They predict and fight crime, help track the crims and keep us safe 
and now could help us keep an eye on some of those doomsday cults. You can get a free trial of the software again at that website, mappingevil.com.au, where you can see Mike shed a quiet tear on Dr. Phil, but you can also see, sorry, Mike, but you can also see those survivors that he's just spoken so passionately about. Mike, thank you so much. I can't wait to hear what we're going to talk about next. If you've found the content covered in this podcast distressing, support is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you have information about any unsolved crime, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. This is a Bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepherd, and Mike King. Sound engineering by Fig Media with editing support from Kim Douglas, Gabby Patterson, Circa 3 and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Superscript, and our executive producers are Raquel Jackson and Alicia Kuperitsis. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia.